following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Our Father, our Heavenly Father, It is good for us to stop and refresh ourselves for a moment by thinking of what you have done to make us your Father, our Father. You sent your own Son to die in our place, lavishing love upon us by unleashing your wrath upon him on his cross. I thank you, Father, that there at that cross we find our identity. We find who we were created to be. I thank you, Father, that you have not only saved us, not only made us your children, but placed us in a family. Placed us in a family where we have a perfect father, a father that we were able to write the script. We couldn't write it any better than you. You are a good and perfect father. You love your children with an infinite love. And so I pray this morning for us that as we we participate together in this love and as as we hear today from your word about how we share in your love, that this sharing would would do something, that it would become effective for the, the full knowledge that we would, we would come to a full knowledge of every good thing that is in this family. That we would, we would come to a greater understanding of all of the good that you have poured into your church, into your family. And that you would help us to see that you are lavishing us with good for the sake of your Son for the fame of His name. Would you help us to see today that these are not two mutually exclusive things, but that you are doing both. And that is just you being you. That is just you being a perfect Father. So grant us grace. Holy Spirit, carry me along as I speak. Would you grant me mercy today as I speak? To be merciful to us, to allow us to hear your word. Word of God, speak for your glory and for our good. Amen. Well, we are in Philemon again this morning. And let me read that. If you are looking for Philemon and you weren't here last time, you'll find it just before Hebrews. 
you have a study Bible, it may resemble the introduction to Hebrews. It's so short. Um, If you hit Titus, you need to go a little bit further to the right. I will read the entire letter. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The word of the Lord. Well, last week we looked at verses 4 through 7, and this morning we will be focusing our attention to verses 8 through 16, really the body of the letter, the the body of the the major appeal that Paul makes in this letter. It's a small letter, and it describes the small spaces in the relationships between just three people in just one situation in the lives of those three people in just one point in history. In the span of all of history, a tremendously minor situation, really. And yet, if God is God, 
then he is God everywhere, even in the small spaces between you and me. He is king and he desires for his glory to be displayed in the tremendously minor events that comprise, frankly, most of our lives. But more than that, he desires and indeed moves to bring his children great good from these tremendously minor events. Because God does not see them that way. They are indeed not minor events, as we will see. The very fact that this letter is in our Bibles evidences this. God is working and moving in the small spaces even today. Philemon and Onesimus are just two ordinary people, and their greatest contribution to Christian history is probably their disagreement, like most of us will, will contribute to Christian history this way. And yet God had purposes for this friction from eternity past that echo through the centuries, right up to this church today, right up to you in your relationships and my relationships today. There are two realities that we experience as Christians, two realities that we think are completely separate and contradictory, but in God's eyes are not. They're actually quite complementary in his plan and his working out sovereignly of all things. His love is the first. His love is infinite. It is close. It is personal. It is strong. It is steadfast. It is unending. It is lavish. He proved this by commissioning his own son to come and die as a man on a cross in our place. His love comes down to us and it calls out to us and it grabs us and it says to you and I, Mine. You are mine, and I've proven that with my love towards you. It's difficult to define love with all of our misconceptions, but there's something earthy and unmistakable about the way Paul defines it in Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you and I had nothing to commend ourselves to God for, Christ died for us in our place. Not only that, but this love changes us. This love transforms us. Not, not just down deep where no one can see it, but on the outside too. It changes everything about us if it has come to us. It is all-encompassing, all-transforming, as we will see. And it displays itself in the church this way. The church is a group of people, a family of transformed ones. And that transformation can and must be displayed. God's love can be compared to a vast ocean of freedom, of rest, and of indescribable joy. And then we go sit on a church board. <laughs> or we join a, a, a team in the church. Or we join with other people in a ministry together and we experience the other reality, the reality of friction and sin. <clears throat> this friction is everywhere. And by, by the way, I say friction because many times uh, in, in church, when problems arise, it, it, uh, it would almost be easier if, if, if there were a specific sin to identify, if right and wrong could be clearly pointed out. But so often it can't. So often there is no identifiable sin. It's a matter of friction between two people. Trouble. An undefinable, ambiguous 
trouble. And it happens all the time in our intersections between each other. And so often, when that friction occurs, we're tempted to forget or even despise the first reality of God's transforming love to us. The second reality becomes our only reality. It becomes our defining reality. It becomes the only thing that matters. And then the identity that we were to have found in the first reality in God's love becomes deformed. It becomes a, a grotesque malformation of what it was ever supposed to be. Our identities become shaped only by what other people have done and what's happening in the culture and what's happening outside of us, to us. The very people who are defined by God's love and speak of God's love and have experienced that love can allow themselves to deform and only demonstrate outwardly bitterness and malice and self-interest. And the world looks in on this body defined by love and says, Ugh. <laughs> Yuck. I don't want that, whatever it is. So when this happens, we've forgotten. We've forgotten how blessed we are in Christ. We've forgotten about the transforming power of God's love to us. That His love has the power to transform us in the small spaces not in some ethereal, conceptual way, but down in the, in the real spaces, in the small moments where you and I actually live day in and day out at 3 o'clock on Wednesday afternoon. His love is meant to transform us and transform our relationships, transform all that we are. Not only that, that transformation comes to us when we first realize how blessed we are and then realize what responsibilities we have that are dictated by those blessings, we must understand both. That we are infinitely blessed people. We are infinitely blessed in the church, in our relationships with each other. And that infinite blessing demands, actually, in the best sense of that word, that we fulfill certain responsibilities to each other for the sake of Christ. So this is our, this is our big point today. Each Christian participates together with other Christians in infinite blessing. And therefore, each is called to fulfill responsibilities in response to that blessing. I'll say it again. Each Christian participates together with other Christians in infinite blessing. And each is called, therefore, to fulfill certain responsibilities in response to that blessing. We must understand both halves of this today. Now, this seems simple enough, and often it is. Someone sins against me and asks for forgiveness. I remember the grace that God has given to me, how infinite that was, and I forgive. Gratefully, humbly to God. I forgive. But as simple as that is, even that's not so common. And even that's not so easy. But real life is often not that simple. Again, it's not often so clear. Did someone actually sin? Why is this friction occurring? What's going on here? Why do I feel the way that I do? And often, as is 
the case in the letter that we're looking at today, the two parties separate in response. It's just unpleasant, and I don't like unpleasantness, and so we separate. We distance ourselves. Maybe they stay in the same church, but often they don't. I simply go to another church with a better this or that, all the while the the real issue is the friction between person A and person B. So it's important that we see what's going on here and just how common this is today. How the, the principles that are showing up in Philemon, how they so apply to us today. Um, this situation in, in the church itself, the situation in Philemon, in our church, is constructed of groups of threes. There is the offender, to some degree. There is the offendee. And then there is person number three. In this case, Paul in this situation. There's always those three. Maybe there's multiple person number threes. But there's always the source of trouble, the experiencer of trouble, and person number three who's somehow involved, who somehow heard about it. All three have specific responsibilities in response to God's infinite love to them. And it's tremendously important in every situation that we discern, who am I here? What is God? How has God loved me? What has God done to love me? And therefore, what are my responsibilities out of that love? So as we unpack the passage before us today, again, we're going to look at verses 8 through 16. We're simply going to look at both halves of this, of this major thought. And we can put the first half this way, that the church displays Christ. We, we display, we, we glorify Christ when our sharing in the love of Christ dominates our priorities with each other. Say that again. The church displays Christ when our sharing in the love of Christ dominates our priorities with each other. We're going to look at where this comes from in the text and then look more closely at what it means for us. Um, Previously, we looked at verses 1 through 7, focusing especially on verse 6. There, Paul says that God has created something incredibly good in building the body of Christ. Despite what we may think at at any certain point in time, the fact is God has invested incredible, infinite good in the church. And we all share in that. We are all partners of what he has invested in this church. He has done all of this. We call this the fellowship of the saints. The fellowship that you and I have. God is is continually pouring out infinite good into that fellowship through His Son. But all of that comes for a higher purpose. It's not just for our enjoyment. It's not all about us. It is, as the end of verse 6 says, for the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ. For His glory. For him to be displayed to the world. So there's something here about you and I enjoying God's love together in the small spaces of our relationships that displays something about Christ. That displays something about Christ and the watching world says, that's unnatural. I don't get that. What? What? That demands an answer to a question. Why? God wants nothing more than to clearly display His Son in the church 
the capital C church, and in this local manifestation of his church. And we get a hint of how he does this in verse 7 when, when Paul remembers how Philemon has refreshed the saints. As we, as we share in our, our common faith in Christ or participate in each other's faith, we, we uncover more and more about this good that God is constantly investing in the church. We don't discover it by ourselves. We discover it together as we invest in each other, as we share in each other's faith. And the more this happens, the, the more this source of refreshment gets shown, the more the source of all of this refreshment gets displayed to each other. And we're refreshed more and more deeply. I'm not going to go here right now, but we get a sense of this as to why Paul says in Ephesians 4, one of the key passages uh, in the Bible on the church, why, why he can talk about how the church builds itself up in love. There's a self-replicating effect as, as God's love is transferred from person to person and the church builds itself up in love as we discover all that he is pouring into the church. And I realize this is highly conceptual at this point and I hope that we will get more grounded as we go along this morning. Paul is building up to something here, something very practical, an appeal. He's making his appeal in the audience actually, which is will be very interesting and, and useful for us to remember as we go along. He's making this appeal in the audience of Philemon's wife, son, and church. Uh, this letter is addressed to them too. That appeal really sh shows itself in verse 17. Paul there says, So if you consider me your partner, if you consider me your Joint sharer in this faith is really what he's what he's getting at. He's not talking about like a, a business partner. He's talking about if you if you really are my my dear friend who shares with me in this same faith, Philemon, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. Philemon needs to receive Onesimus because Onesimus is Philemon's slave, and he's run away. We don't know why, but it probably involved some kind of dispute. It's also possible that Onesimus may have stolen something from Philemon uh, before he left to fund his getaway. Uh, we don't know for sure. We get this, though, from verse 18. Somehow, Onesimus finds Paul. Paul was probably a thousand miles away. But Onesimus perhaps has second thoughts and finds Paul, and he probably goes and seeks out Paul in order to, for Paul to arbitrate this dispute. Perhaps... Uh, for Onesimus uh, to be freed, perhaps to plead Onesimus's case to Philemon. So what does Paul do? Paul shares the gospel with Onesimus. And Onesimus is saved, freed forever from his greatest enemy, from the greatest tyranny he would ever experience. First things first, and Onesimus is saved. Um, this helps us under, to understand why Paul is addressing uh, Philemon's church as he seeks to persuade Philemon in what would normally be considered a, a very personal and private matter, the dispute between two people. That's because Onesimus is now a new Onesimus. The old is gone, the new one is now Philemon's brother in Christ. 
He is now a member of the body of Christ. So that, that new relationship that Philemon and Onesimus share takes preeminence. The other categories of thinking are now secondary. Paul is saying, Philemon, you have one category of thought to think through this problem. You have one category of thinking by which to obey, to think through this and obey. It is the category of what it means that you and Onesimus are now brothers in Christ. That takes priority of place. That is a massive point in this letter. So Paul is saying, Philemon, you have responsibilities that you never had before to Onesimus. And it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with you, but it had nothing to do with you. That these re responsibilities were laid upon you. So it's incumbent upon Philemon, and it's incumbent upon us to clearly and fully grasp the, the implications of our new identity in Christ. Our new identity of, of being members of God's family. Of the fact that we now mutually share in a love and a faith that the world will never know outside of God's love coming to them. And please don't miss the, the order of what I just said. Uh, I, I just described to you one of the simple wonders of the gospel. Um, because if... It, I don't know about you, but if I were writing the gospel from scratch, I would have written it in the other order. I would have written it the other way. We do what we do, and we work hard, and we fulfill our responsibilities in order to achieve a new identity. And God says, no, no. I will do it the other way. I will love you with an infinite all-encompassing love such that your, your identity will now be swallowed up in this love. The old is gone, the new has come. You are no longer you, you are a new you. And that identity will never change because I said so. Because I chose to. Just because I wanted to. Because I love you. You have this new identity. Which brings with it certain responsibilities. Because my love is so infinite to you. Because I want some benefit from you. As Paul says to Philemon. One of the simple glories of the gospel. Which leads us to the main section of the letter. And to understand more clearly what these, these implications are of our new identity. Paul has a higher priority than simply ensuring that Philemon does what he should. And just making sure that Philemon, or excuse me, yes, that Philemon obeys the rules. Paul says in verses 8 and 9, Accordingly, accordingly, he's thinking about everything that he just said about, about this, how God has been pouring everything into this relationship and how much good we have in this, this fellowship and how it is all for the sake of Christ. And how Philemon has refreshed the hearts of the saints. Paul is think, now thinking about all that when he says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, verse 9, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. In verse 6, it was for the sake of Christ. And now in verse 9, it's for love's sake. 
This helps us to understand a little better what Paul means by for love's sake. He's not talking about some nebulous kind of mamby-pamby version of love, some, some nebulous thing that you can't feel and touch and see. He's talking about the very, very clear, very real, very evident in the church love of Christ. He's talking about the love of Christ being displayed in everything that Philemon does now. That Philemon, because he has been loved by Christ, because he has been entered into this new relationship with Onesimus, he has a responsibility to display that same love and how he treats Onesimus. No matter what happens between Philemon and Onesimus, because Paul doesn't command Philemon what to do. For Paul, what must happen, what is first and foremost, is that the love of Christ be displayed. Do you get that? Because when I say that out loud, that sounds a little bit heretical to me. But Paul is saying, I actually want you, Philemon, I'm more concerned that you display the love of Christ than I am actually whether or not you obey. I am concerned whether you obey. <laughs> Paul's really going to lay on the, the pressure thick in this letter. But he wants, he wants Philemon to obey freely. Not out of compulsion, he says, but in response to the infinite love of Christ. And because of his new re- Philemon's new relationship with Onesimus, their new relationship demands it. Actually, it would be more accurate to say how their relationship was created demands it. That it was the same infinite love of Christ that created this new relationship. They are united together in Christ. This little phrase shows itself in all the key points in this letter. In verse 8, he says, I am bold enough in the Lord. In verse 16 and again in verse 20, he says... In Christ. So to be in Christ means to be bound together with cords of, of infinite love with those who have been shown that same infinite love. You and I are bound together by cords of infinite love in a new relationship. So Paul goes on to demonstrate this, this preeminent priority of displaying Christ's love in the church, in these triangles that comprise all of our relationships. And he shows us this by by showing us in verses 8 through 13 what didn't make it to the top. There's many competing priorities for uh, for the top priority. Paul says he had grounds in verse 8 to command Philemon, and he says, I I would have been right before, before God. I would have been right in Christ to command you. But he doesn't. He doesn't. God wants obedience, but not first without the obedient one beholding Christ, beholding His glorious love and responding out of that love. Because when you and I do that, there is something more than just obedience that happens, that Christ's love is displayed in our obedience. Don't you want that? Don't you want that for your your brother and sister? To not just obey, but to glorify God in that obedience. Yes, yes. That is why in our, in our church's own core values, we're, we, we talked about this in, in Sunday school, we don't start with obeying the Bible completely. 
That's number two. What's number one? What is it? (laughs) Treasuring Christ supremely. Only out of treasuring Christ supremely do we obey the Bible completely. Only by trusting in Christ do we have complete obedience because He is the only one who has obeyed and He has done it in our place. So first and foremost, we must be a people who treasures Christ supremely. Paul wants that first and foremost in this dispute between Philemon and Onesimus. More than obedience, he wants Christ to be treasured and displayed. The display of this this love of Christ takes priority over the fact that he's an old man. And he could use Onesimus' service, Paul says. That even though he is suffering for Christ as a prisoner, that still doesn't rise to the top as the top priority. Though even in verse 10, that Onesimus has become Paul's child in the faith. Though Onesimus has become exceedingly dear to Paul, that Paul begat him, gave birth to him as a new child of God, Paul says that even that, that still doesn't rise to the top here. That's still not my first priority. Onesimus, whose name means useful, would be extremely useful to Paul now. And yet Paul is sending him back to Philemon for love's sake. For love's sake, Paul says in verse 13, I'm giving up my very heart. And I, I know that, that you, my dear Philemon, my good friend, I know that you would serve me yourself if you could. And it's as if you are serving me with, with useful Onesimus here with me. Um, but I'm sending him back for love's sake. Don't miss the end of verse 13. There is something even greater, more important than the gospel being being spread here. Paul Paul would have been on good grounds with any one of us if he said, I'm going to keep him because I, I need him for the spread of the gospel here. And yet he has a larger, more important priority that simply comes first. That is the priority priority of the display of the love of Christ in the church. No doubt, Paul is putting the pressure on Philemon here. But it's, it's for a good purpose. It is for a true purpose. To demonstrate and exemplify for Philemon an, an all-encompassing, all-dominating purpose for God to glorify His Son in His church by displaying His love. Yes, 1 Corinthians 13 should, should, should ring out here in our minds. To overlay it with with Paul's thoughts here. We could, in our church, command people to do what is required. We could suffer as prisoners for Christ. We could continually grow in our usefulness for gospel ministry. We could send off our very children to share the gospel in the worst, darkest corners of the earth. We could serve our persecuted brothers around the world. But if the love of Christ is not our compelling motive, if He is not displayed in all of it, then it is all for nothing. We must remember our core to treasure Christ. Now, you might be thinking, I heard this recently. I don't don't think the brother's here that said this to me this week. I don't think he's here this morning, but um, I heard this this week. He said, sometimes I feel like I'm never good enough in church. I feel like I'm... I, I hear a sermon and I just feel like I'm never good enough. And I want to say 
that part of that is the whole point. For you to get off the treadmill of thinking that you've got to be good enough, that you've got to obey the rules, that you've got to do everything that's required. you would look to Christ and His magnificent, lavish love to you and that you would find rest, that you would jump off the treadmill and rest in what He has done for you and that you would rejoice in all the good that He is pouring in this, this mystical relationship that each one of us shares in by faith, that He was good enough in your place. Man, that's good news. And to, to, to look to Him and to realize that we are perfect in God's eyes because He was perfect. We are counted perfect because of His love was perfect and complete to us through His Son. Brothers and sisters, this church, this new life, these relationships, they're fundamentally not about being good enough. They don't center around doing what is required. They're about treasuring the one who has been good enough and then seeing him displayed in our relationships. To love in, in just a, a grain of sand as we have been loved. And in that grain of sand he shows up. It pops. And the world says, what? <laughs> what is that? So this is why Paul leaves room for Philemon to act on his own accord in verse 14. The love of God transforms us beyond simply doing what is required to true freedom. We are, we are now free to even do more than what is required. Paul says that at the end of the letter. I, I know Philemon. I know who you are. I know how you've been loved by Christ because I see how you love the other brothers. So I know that you'll do even more than what's required. Therefore, I'm, I'm not even going to tell you what's required in this letter. And Paul does it. Paul never even says it. <clears throat> I'm not even going to tell you because I know who you are in Christ, in the love of Christ. It frees us to repent with abandon, to obey with abandon, to serve with, ab with abandon, to receive one another in the midst of our sin and friction with abandon. To receive one another with, with lavish mercy. So that people, even people in the church say, what? Huh. That's, huh, yeah, good. Mm-hmm. Yes, we need more of that. Yep. Good. You should do that. No, no, it was done to me. I must do it joyfully, freely. I've been free to do it because of what he's done. Because of the, the cross of my Savior. So Paul, Paul adds two crucial new perspectives in verses 15 and 16. Um, they're, they're two perspectives that we, we can't afford to miss. We just can't. They're kind of transitional verses in the letter, but they are vital. Vital to us. The first comes at the beginning of verse 15. Paul draws Philemon's eyes up from himself to the larger picture of why. Why? Why did Onesimus run away? 
Why did God let me go through this? Maybe loss of money, embarrassment to my congregation. Just I'm just plain mad about it. Um, he stole money from me, perhaps. Why? Why did God let this situation happen? That God could glorify himself by saving one and blessing another. God, get this, God actually had Onesimus run away and steal from Philemon so that Philemon could be blessed through Onesimus. <laughs> That's how God works. God takes these, these, these run-ins, these intersections of, of sin and friction and redeems them and transforms them through his love into glory for himself and good to us. It's amazing when you see it. And it's hard to imagine, and yet it is still true. God is very much in this business, in us, in this church. At least he desires to be. <clears throat> He's continually taking the sins of men and redeeming them into a stage upon which His glory is displayed. God is not limited by our sin. His purposes are never thwarted by us. Ever. What are those purposes? Well, let's look at the rest of verses 15 and 16. Paul here tightly packs together several of the, the key blessings that we possess in Christ. The first one is eternal brotherhood. Eternal brotherhood. Paul says in verse, uh, verse 15, For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Onesimus and Philemon have been entered into a new eternal relationship, not by marriage, but by simple faith in Christ. By faith alone in Christ alone. We have become brothers and sisters, and this brotherhood will outlast every other country, every kingdom, every political system, every ideology, every other group and idea in existence. By sharing in faith in Christ, we have become eternal brothers and sisters. This should cast a transforming light on how we see each other. We are eternally a family. But more than that, we have a new identity in this new family. It shows up in verse 16. Paul says, uh, Philemon, uh, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. We're placed into a family that, that subsumes and dominates any other relationship. But get this, not for the sake of anything else but love. Not for a bigger church, not for cultural change, not for more tithing, not to keep people in line, not to enhance our reputation. It is always and forever for God to be glorified and for sinners to treasure Him because they found a new identity in Him. Onesimus is still Philemon's slave, but he is now his beloved brother. Onesimus has entered a new kingdom, and the identity that he has from that kingdom takes center stage. That identity takes priority to Philemon. Not a status of slave. 
That identity of beloved brother is more, Paul says, than the old identity. The old identity is still there, but perhaps not for long. Because of this new identity. Let me ask you a question. Who's your family? What family are you deriving your identity from? Which is it? Is it your birth family? Is it your trade group or your career? Is it your political party? Is it your favorite talk show host? Let me ask another question. What would get your ire up more in a conversation? If someone maligned the body of Christ, if someone maligned the gospel, or if someone gave approval to President Obama's recent decree on immigration, which would offend you more? I think the answer to that question says something about where we're deriving our identity. Is is immigration important? Is the issue important? Yes. Do we need to have an informed opinion about it? Yes. Should we enter into the debate? Should we enter into the issue? Yes. But what are you treasuring at your core? What are you really treasuring? For too long, the American church has looked outside its own family for good. All the while Christ has been pouring himself, the ultimate good, into her. For too long we've looked outside of ourselves and said, you know what, we're missing something. Let's start a parachurch ministry. Not that I'm against parachurch ministries. My in-laws are here today, they work for one. (laughs) But there's something core, something, something at the core of what God is doing in all the universe that is displayed right here in the church and our relationships between each other. And just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's true. doesn't mean it's not true. Let's start a parachurch organization. This isn't working. Let's, let's work for political and cultural change. If only we can get a Christian in the White House, then, then we will see good. Then good things will come to us. Then we will be free to worship. Then we will be free to do what we want to do. No. You are already free in Christ. As Paul told the Corinthians, you already reign as kings. You are already a member of a family of kings that will outlast every kingdom. I love my country, but I am part of a family that will reign over every vestige of this country for all eternity. That's all because of Christ's love to me. Undeserved, lavish, infinite. What are we treasuring? Brothers and sisters, I I think sometimes we, we treasure something other than Christ. Sometimes we treasure our own comfort. Sometimes it's a it's a Norman Rockwellian cultural picture. So now let let me appeal to you for the sake of love and say, what will we have when we get there? What will we have? What good will we have when we achieve that Norman Rockwell society? I submit to you, we will have nothing if we do not have Christ. 
all of our good is bound up in Him now. He has claimed us for His own. And in His love we find good. And without it we have nothing. I think if we get there without Christ, all we will find is a chasing after the wind. God means to save us from ourselves and bring us actual good for real people anywhere, everywhere. And it comes to us by treasuring Christ, by treasuring what He has done to unite us together in Him. Well, the third thing we see here is real change. Real change. And it, it took me a while to, to see this connection. Um, but it is, it is massive in this. We see that this, this new eternal identity in this new family really does change us in this life now. Paul, earlier in the letter, refers to Onesimus as saying he was useless before. And I think what Paul is saying is, uh, before Christ, Onesimus as a person was a useless person. <laughs> that he was just useless to everybody for some reason. But post-Christ, Paul says, something has changed. Onesimus, in, in ways that people can readily and quickly and, and grittily understand, has become useful. He has been transformed by his new identity in Christ. He did not earn this identity. He was given it, and it has made him useful. His name actually really does describe him, the new Onesimus. This is why Paul says this little phrase at the end of verse 16. Um, he says, No longer is a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. I get the in the Lord part, but what does he mean by in the flesh? Because he's not actually Philemon's brother. No, he's saying that he is getting someone new back in the flesh. That this new identity has transformed him. He is indeed in the ways that it counts most. Deep down and where just ordinary people can see a new man. The grace of, the grace of Christ transforms it must. It will. So we have to see just how revolutionary this was then and it still is today. Being in this family does not mean that we retreat from society. No, quite the contrary. When Onesimus returns, the church will see and display something so foreign to the society then and now. They will see and display a welcoming of each other that is completely unnatural based on our normal categories. The master will now welcome the slave with the importance and the honor of a beloved brother. That person who we disagree with politically will be welcomed and received with unnatural love. We can call out to the to the worst, most vile sinner. Trust Christ and re receive a new identity. One where you, you will know God and you will know that God knows you. And you will be free to depart from all your iniquity. Free. Because He knows you. And not only that, not only that, but you will see your new identity reflected in the eyes of the saints as they welcome you 
as they welcome as they welcome you the the former prostitute and everyone knows it and yet they welcome you as a beloved sister in Christ as one who is pure as one who has never committed any sin and the world looks on and says how do you do that Christ <clears throat> the old categories have gone and behold the new have come the new one category our relationship in Christ so what categories are you living by we need to be honest with ourselves what categories are you living by by what categories are you viewing other people through what glasses do you see other people there is our relationship of being united in Christ and his love and then there is everything else well, the last blessing we is just this that we are united in Christ Philemon and Onesimus are now united together in Christ both recipients of his infinite love both are now eternal equals because Christ has done it all of this all of these blessings are vividly illustrated by Paul's words in Galatians 3 familiar words I'm sure to you Galatians 3 verses 27 and 28 for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek there is neither slave nor free there is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus we are saved into an eternal family of kings by faith alone and Christ alone well how does this happen what do we do with this well i'll tell you where i'm convicted i'm convicted as i study philemon that i need to slow down i need to slow down and i need to rehearse these truths before i send out that email to that other person i need to i need to rehearse these truths and rehearse who that other person is that i'm sending this email to or before i pick up the phone or just before i open my mouth i need to rehearse these truths in prayer before the lord as i as i pray for others i need to rehearse these truths whenever possible i need to pray for god's grace to see other people to the category of our our mutual sharing of faith in christ that we are eternally equals that we are an eternal family of people who will reign forever. But there's another point that hits me clearly here. That is if I if I rightly perceive our union in Christ, if we really are washed clean by the blood of Christ, if we are lavished with infinite love each and every one of us equally equally justified equally received equally viewed as perfectly righteous before a righteous god if that's true about each and every christian and we all share in that that faith then i'll be less prone to immediately think in terms of right and wrong when i'm listening to someone is obedience important as we said before yes it's number 2 but what i really need to do is is listen to you and you need to listen to me you need to listen to me and and try to th- think about what is jed treasuring 
What is Jed treasuring? Is it Christ or is it something else? And I need to listen to you. Not to see, are you doing things just right? Are you doing what's required? Are we a church that's doing just what's required? Are we first treasuring Christ? And that simply takes listening for the right things. I need to listen to try to discern and find out what's most important to God. Is his son being treasured? And it's when we begin to answer that question first, that in our sin and our friction, God will take these situations and redeem them for his glory and our good. I think there's a, there's a little bit of something there as, as to how this works. I think it starts with listening for what we're treasuring. All of this means that the fellowship we share in God's love must increasingly dominate our old ways of thinking. The cultures of our employers or our other organizations or associations may have, may have drilled grooves in us that need to be redrilled. And we redrill those grooves by, by rehearsing these truths and rehearsing them with each other. Um, we may have subtly drifted over the years into thinking that our income deep down really does make us a little better. Or our nationality. Or our looks. Or the position or respect we hold in our career. Maybe the position we hold in church. Or maybe that we've not committed that really bad sin that other people have committed. Maybe that's where our identity is found. Our sense of worth. No. We think of ourselves too much. We are a band of eternal equals. All created that way by the infinite love of Christ. That's where our identity is found. So as you think about this, you may need to repent, not of an outward act, but of your your inward resistance for God's love to have the, the place of priority in your thinking and how you view other people. Your repentance may need to be something very much on the inside that hasn't shown itself much on the outside. Probably has, though. So I, I exhort you, repent of this resistance. Run hard in humility to the cross. Find again your identity there. Find it again. And then move towards your brother and sister in a responsible way. And this brings us to our second point, and it will be very brief. Our second main point today is this, that the church displays Christ when each person lives in a responsible way with the others. I say responsible to say love one another. We often don't put those two words together, but that's exactly what's happening here. We love one another by clearly discerning the responsibilities that we have out of Christ's love to us. And I'm coming to the end of of my time this morning, so I need to to summarize. I need to summarize and say, or ask the question, what exactly are our responsibilities? What exactly do they look like? You tell me, Pastor. And I'll say, actually, if I told you what those responsibilities are for you in your situation, I would be doing exactly the opposite of what Paul has been doing in this letter. Because mostly what he's been doing is reminding Philemon of the love of everything that I've been saying. The love of Christ. 
We need each other. We need each other in these triangles to help us understand what do we do specifically? What is my responsibility here? Which makes the role and responsibility of person number three, the observer, the third party in this triangle, very important. Very important. Too often we do a Christian version of what happens in, or at least what I envision happens in salon parlors, you know. Woman has a complaint. Hairdresser's response. I know, girl. Yep, I know. Men are pigs. You get yourself a new one. You know, that sort of thing. Where we, we don't discern that we have a responsibility there to turn the other people to their responsibilities out of the love of Christ. We don't, we don't discern that at all. All we do is begin to look and see what's right and what's wrong. Who's, who's been right? Who's been wrong? Okay, I'm going to take this side and be against this person because I'm thinking all, only in terms of right and wrong. And never asking myself, are either of these people treasuring Christ? Let's start there. Let's start there and the other things will sort themselves out as we go. All of this means recoiling against individualistic Christianity wherever we find it. It means remembering that, that we, are, we are a community of individuals that are responsible for the other person. We are responsible for each other. God's love demands it. These are not easy questions. We need to think long and hard about what this means for those in our church who don't come from our country or our brothers and sisters uh, across this nation or across the world or our brothers and sisters but who exist in entirely different situations. We need to think about what grace and mercy and faithfulness looks like to our brothers and sisters who are oppressed. It means that in all of these relationships, all of our relationships must increasingly be reconfigured according to the love of Christ. We'll just look at the how this happens in the letter and then we'll we'll end. Paul gives up his useful friend for the sake of love. Onesimus freely returns to his master for the sake of love. Philemon is then to welcome his servant, not only in forgiveness, but in a manner that their new relationship demands with love and equality. He's to welcome him truly as a brother. He's to welcome him just as if it were Paul himself. Indeed, alone, this act would, would serve to refresh all of the saints in his house, but also to provide a graphic picture of the love of Christ to a watching world. What? He's your slave, right? Why, why are you treating him this way? What? None of this is natural, but all of it, all of it occurs only when we are, and I use the word advisedly, dominated in the best sense of that word by the reality of this new relationship we have in Christ. So I say, run hard after Christ. 
run hard after him. And I want to ask you a question. For whose sake are you living and striving today? For whose sake are you working? Are you churning for? Who are you being spent for? Is your identity found in Christ's love for you? If it is, then you'll be free. You'll be free to truly obey and to do so much more than what is required. If your identity will be found in Christ, then you will be free to live a life that demands an answer to the question, why? The world will stand up and notice and may hate you for it, but may be drawn to Christ for it too. You will live a life that glorifies Him. Isn't that what you want, my brother and sister? Where is your identity found? Is it in Christ? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I praise you that it was for freedom that you set us free. No longer to be enslaved to doing all that is required. No longer living lives that are just so. But living lives that are set free. Set free from our, our old lives of iniquity, enslavement to ourselves, and enslavement to what other people have done to us. But you have freed us. You have made us truly new. And I praise your name for it. I hope that you have been praised this morning. I, I, I pray that, that we would leave today, if nothing else, with a song in our hearts about how good you are, how lavish you have been in your love to us. Oh, Lord, work in our hearts. Make room for yourself in our hearts. Clear away the, the detritus of our old lives. Reign supreme. In the best sense of the word, come, Lord Jesus, dominate our hearts. Dominate our thoughts. Dominate our categories of thinking. Transform us. Transform our relationships. Do all of this for your glory. And we know that you will be, bring us much good through it all. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is... Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 
6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.